who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at bufferingcast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Realm presents Ninth Step Murders, Episode 4. Each night in Sumido Ward, Tokyo's glittering lights kept full dark at bay. Akari Huang swiped through news feeds on her data sleeve, then tugged on her right shoe where it dug into her heel. Record note, she said, activating voice recognition on her sleeve. Pick up blister pads, and note. The elevator of her apartment building took its time ferrying other residents to their chosen floors. A sharp ding echoed through the empty lobby every five to fifteen seconds. A newsreel featuring Minister Kobayashi flashed across her sleeve, which she only half paid attention to. Another ding. More waiting. She yawned and ruminated over her last client's therapeutic treatment plan, debating whether she should recommend pharmaceutical intervention or stick to cognitive behavioral therapy. Record note. The lobby went black. She groaned. Don't record that. And note. Another blackout. Her neighborhood had been subjected to one just four days ago. She uselessly mashed the elevator call button repeatedly out of frustration, then tugged off her shoes, hooked a finger through the heel straps, turned on her sleeve's flashlight, and headed for the stairwell. Terrific, she said to herself, opening the door. Six floors, let's go. Perfect darkness. His ocular implants shifted to infrared. He looked down at his own hand as he tucked himself into the corner of the sixth floor door to the stairwell. 
His body radiated a righteous heat, illuminated, whole, human. He stood stuck still as he waited, the murmur of distant conversation through apartment walls gently bubbling within the quiet. His nerves tingled in anticipation. He breathed deeply and deliberately to soothe them. Six floors. The average sixth-floor resident took between 60 to 90 seconds to climb the stairwell at a steady pace. During a blackout, that increased by 10 to 30 seconds, with emergency lights guiding the way. This night's darkness was complete. With emergency lights disconnected, Huang would rely entirely on the narrow illumination her sleeve could provide. The frustration of the blackout the inconvenience of malfunctioning lights, and her typical post-workday exhaustion would leave her less likely to be vigilant about her surroundings. Huang was on her home turf, but he was prepared. She paused at the final step to the sixth floor landing to stretch her calf muscles by gently tilting each heel toward the step below, careful to keep her hand on the railing in the dark. She swung her sleeve's light toward the door and pushed it open. Dinner, please, she huffed to herself, voice drowned out by the door automatically swinging shut behind her. She started digging through her bag to grab the manual key to her apartment. And bed. Sleep for ten years. As Huang entered the hallway, he remained invisible in the darkness behind the stairwell door. Just before it clanged shut, he moved forward, stepping in time with her to mask the sound of his quiet footfalls. In the center of her infrared form, a black cloud bloomed like a sudden bruise. Cold, sinister emptiness peeked through the false warmth of her body, revealing truth. A truth he would quell. Huang was about five feet from her apartment when he lunged forward. She turned and swept her sleeve's light in his direction, which his implants immediately compensated for. She was far too slow. He punched her in the throat, reducing her voice to a choke before she could even try to shout. He grabbed her arm and twisted it behind her, then forced her knees to buckle and shoved her to the ground, knee on her spine, hand on the back of her head. Sounds that weren't quite language escaped her lips. He remained silent, save the sound of his breath. Her liquid infrared form glimmered as she struggled, arms flailing. But she was small and he was not. Her hands batted at him uselessly. Tears and sweat matted her hair beneath his hand. He kept his hand pressing down on her head as he reached for the large zip tie in his back pocket, his knee unforgiving as it dug into the heart of the black, writhing mass that betrayed her true intent. It took only seconds to fasten the zip tie around her thin neck and pull it tight with a clamp. The plastic burrowed into her flesh. Within about ten seconds, she passed out. He spent another five minutes kneeling on her body, Muscles taut with the effort of ending her, palm aching against the handles of the clamp. Five minutes that stretched out so far, 
He could feel each second like hot wax dripping on his skin. Bit by bit, the darkness in the center of Huang faded. Act One Not far from Kyuyasudateen, on the shore of the Sumida River, Sakura petals floated toward the ground along whimsical paths, carried by soft currents of air. One petal drifted down, its destination ever-changing, until it came to rest on a black tarp near several of its siblings. A wrinkled, pale gray hand peeked out from beneath it, its waterlogged skin barely clinging to the flesh beneath. Uniformed officers from Ninth Step Station kept the steady trickle of early morning walkers from approaching the scene as CSI technicians worked. Miyako waved Emma over. There you are, Miyako said. Emma carried two hot teas, their little paper tags fluttering in the morning breeze. Miyako accepted Emma's thoughtful gesture, its warmth comforting in her hand. At least they were back to thoughtful gestures. Brace yourself, Miyako said, covering her nose and mouth with her hankachi. They're worse when they're like this. Like what? Emma sipped her tea. Miyako led her partner to the far end of the crime scene, where investigator Sato crouched over the black tarp. As they approached... He gently folded it down to reveal the upper body of their murder victim. We had to move her away from the water to prevent further tissue loss. Emma flinched and covered her nose and mouth with her forearm. Miyako couldn't blame her. The air itself seemed to pucker with rot. The ligature marks on the woman's neck were among the worst Miyako had ever seen. Deep and livid against swollen flesh. Parts of the victim's face had been eaten away by fish, and a heady, dense scent saturated the air. I'm guessing she didn't drown, Miyako said. She moved to take a sip of her tea, but the smell of death filled the cup. Right. No tea, then. No, and she didn't travel too far in the river. Sato aimed his pointer at the victim's eyes. See the line across her corneas? Air exposure. She died on land, probably no more than 12 hours ago. We'll need the coroner's report to confirm, but I'd say she was thrown in post-mortem. Sato carefully drew the tarp back over the body and stood. We got lucky. The victim was a psychiatrist, so she's in the database for medical personnel. Not so lucky for her. Emma said as both she and Miyako accessed the case file on their sleeves. Dr. Akari Huang, 28, psychiatrist in Sumida Ward, specializing in trauma. No living relatives, parents deceased. Only child, no spouse, no children. She lived about five blocks from here, Miyako said. Looks like we used up all our luck, though. Her building suffered a blackout last night, and management has already filed a report with the city that their backup systems failed, so no interior security footage. We'll have to see what we can pull from any nearby drones, 
See who entered and exited the building around the time of the murder. We should talk to the neighbors directly, too, Emma said. We'll start there, Miyako said. Thank you, investigator. Miyako nodded politely at Sato, then took off at a brisk pace, heading in the general direction of the apartment building, away from the smell. Emma appeared at Miyako's side in short order. Well, that was a new shade of terrible. Miyako glanced briefly at Emma as they walked. I would imagine you've seen worse. I guess it depends on what you think worse means. Seems like everyone has seen some kind of worse. Huang lived in an old office building that had been repurposed and rezoned as an apartment complex after the earthquake. Studio units with terrible network connectivity and mediocre paint jobs that barely concealed old water stains. The lobby greeted Emma and Miyako with a static-laden, disembodied okaerinesai. The hologram visuals were out of order. That has to get old fast, Emma said as they each bumped their credentials into the administrative scanner. Miyako shrugged. Some people find it comforting. Two teenagers sat on the floor against a wall by the elevators, flanking a short-range wireless community charging pad. Electric blue filigree glittered across the shorter teen's cheek. A handwritten sign leaned against the wall behind the charger. Help yourself, but please be courteous to your neighbors. Thank you. Miyako and Emma spent the morning trying to interview Huang's neighbors, but most either weren't home or weren't answering their doors. Those who did answer had nothing to offer, claiming they had been asleep, or not home, or simply didn't hear or see anything unusual. Emma found it hard to believe that in the middle of a blackout with no ambient noise from generators drowning out the sound, no one would have heard a murder taking place right outside their door. I'm thinking it didn't happen here, Miyako said keeping her voice soft as they approached the apartment at the end of the hall. I was just thinking the same thing, Emma said. Could have happened on the maintenance floor, maybe. Or in a stairwell. Emma knocked on the door of the last of Huang's neighbors, Yuto Fujita. A series of high-pitched muffled barks came from inside. After a brief wait, the door opened a crack revealing half of an older man's face. His gray hair was matted to one side of his head, as if he had been sleeping. Miyako and Emma both bowed. Fujita-san. Emma hoped she'd recall the appropriate etiquette for speaking to a stranger at their home under these circumstances. We apologize for disturbing you. I'm Higashi Emma, and this is my partner, Koreda Miyako. We're from the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department. Our credentials should be queued up in your building system. May we speak to you? He eyed them up and down, but remained mostly hidden. What do you need? Emma glanced instinctively at Miyako. We need to ask you a few questions about an incident that took place in this building last night. Do you remember anything unusual? From behind the man came the rhythmic, jingling sound of a dog scratching its neck. Etto, 
Fujita looked back over his shoulder, then opened the door enough to speak to them comfortably. I don't know. There was a blackout. Did you hear anything strange? Miyako asked. See anyone unfamiliar? Should I be worried about trouble? Emma smiled. It's our job to make sure you and your neighbors are safe and undisturbed. That's why we're talking to you, Fujita-san. He lowered his voice. Trouble like resistance. Miyako cut in quickly. Let us worry about that. What did you hear, Fujita-san? He brushed his fingers through his grizzled hair a couple of times, arranging the mess into a new configuration. It's possible there was a little noise last night. Miyako tensed. Can you describe what you heard? It's very hard to say. Just do your best, Emma said. Anything at all could be helpful. There were sounds. What kind of sounds? Emma kept her tone encouraging, but not over-eager. I'm not sure. I was in my apartment. About what time did you hear these sounds, Fujita-san? Emma said. It's really very difficult to say. It was after dark. Maybe nine o'clock. Could you try one more time to describe the sounds you heard? Fujita made a few noises as he thought. Well, he tilted his head a bit. Like an intense effort. Heavy sounds, like someone fell. <coughs> the dog behind him let out another small, shrill bark. Emma could see now that it was a Pomeranian with a teddy bear haircut. Fujita hushed it. Dame, dame, Momo-chan. It's okay. Will you allow us one more question, Fujita-san? Emma said. If you had to say, about how far away were the noises you heard, standing where you are now? He peered out of his apartment, down the empty hallway, squinted, made a noise as he considered. Maybe two doors from here. It's very difficult to say, but I think perhaps it was that far away. Thank you, Fujita-san. Emma bowed. Miyako bowed as well. If you remember anything else, please contact the Tokyo Metropolitan Police as soon as possible. I passed the direct line into your home network with our credentials. Fujita made a few hasty bows and closed the door. Miyako chewed her cheek. His report could have been related to Huang, but... It could have been a lot of things. Emma sighed. It's information, at least. We can follow up later with the neighbors who didn't answer. Maybe one of them will have something. Let's hope we have more success with her co-workers, Miyako said. Nishimura sent a tam mail saying they're waiting for us at the station. Hmm. Emma double-checked her sleeve. It didn't come through on mine. Miyako joined Emma and Goto. Huang's office assistant, in the department's interrogation room, bringing a tray of tea to encourage the assistant to open up. 
Small things could smooth the edges of an otherwise intimidating experience. The woman couldn't have been more than twenty-five, with a conservative chin-length haircut, soft features, and a wide-eyed, anxious expression. We don't want you to be nervous, Goto-san, Emma said as Miyako handed a cup of tea to the assistant, then passed one to Emma and took one for herself. We just need your help in finding out what happened to your boss. Goto looked at each of them in turn, cupping her hands around the tea. Koreda Miyako, Miyako said, taking a seat. Higashi-san's partner. What can you tell us about Huang Akari? Goto looked back to Emma, almost as if for reassurance. What comes to mind when you think of her? Emma asked. Dr. Huang. She idly traced her thumb over the lip of the cup while warming her hands. She treated me like a colleague instead of an employee. Even though I'm not a doctor, I just help her with paperwork and scheduling. She closed her eyes. The muscles at the corners of her mouth twitched as she fought against her grief. Helped her. Past tense. Emma gave her an empathetic look. I know how difficult this must be. Can you think of any reason anyone would want to hurt her? Goto shook her head, swallowed her sadness. She devoted her life to helping people affected by the disaster and the war. I don't know why anyone would want to hurt someone like that. Goto pulled out her hankachi and dabbed at her tears, then took a sip of tea to focus on something else. Do you know if she had any trouble with people who might have had emotional reasons to want to lash out? Miyako asked. Anyone in her life who might have a grudge? An ex-romantic partner or a difficult client? Goto shook her head again and shrugged helplessly. I never heard about her dating as long as I worked for her. All of her clients had difficulties in one way or another, but she never seemed afraid of any of them, if that's what you mean. They aren't dangerous people, just in pain, like so many of us. What can you tell us about her relationship with Yoshiko Harada? Emma said. The office manager. Harada-san? Goto offered the same helpless shrug. They were good friends, as far as I knew. Thank you, Goto-san, Miyako said. You can go. Please contact us if you think of anything else, and send Harada-san in when you leave. I'm very sorry for your loss. Her words sounded hollow to her own ears in the wake of Emma's compassion. But she didn't know how Emma could entangle herself emotionally and still maintain healthy boundaries. She assumed it must be her experiences as a peacekeeper. But it still made her feel vaguely inadequate in a distant, nagging sort of way. Perhaps Emma could teach her how she managed. Goto collected her bag, then paused. Please tell me if you find who did this. They both nodded once. We will, Emma said. Thank you. Goto clutched her bag to her chest and left.
It's possible this was a random act of violence. Miyako tapped a nail on her cup. I didn't get the impression she was hiding anything. Did you? A quiet knock on the doorframe. Shitsure shimasu. Harada stood in the entrance. She was older than the assistant, maybe forty, forty-five, with long braided hair and an air of sadness. I was told you were ready for me. Come in, have a seat, Emma said, gesturing to the spot next to her on the couch. Can we get you some tea? No, thank you. We appreciate you talking with us, Miyako said. We'll get right to the point. Do you have any reason to think anyone wanted to hurt your former employer? No, Harada said. She tucked an errant hair behind her ear. I'm sure Goto told you all about her, but she was a very bright and caring person. All of her clients loved her, and the world is a darker place without her in it. You were very fond of her. Harada bowed her head. Each movement seemed measured, deliberate. Though her face was dry, her tense posture and white-knuckled grip on the hem of her skirt gave Miyako the impression of grief, not manipulation. Yes, Harada said. I was. I know this is hard, Miyako said. But we need to ask you to send us her client files. The department already received judicial clearance for them. I truly don't think any of her clients would have done this. Many of them are war veterans. Family members who lost someone in the disaster. Victims. Emma nodded. Even so, the information in those files might provide insight into the circumstances leading up to her death. Harada closed her eyes briefly, then nodded. I understand. Harada rolled up her cardigan to access her data sleeve and proceeded to unlock Huang's client files for the department. Thank you, Emma said. That's all we need to ask of you for now, but if you think of anything else that might help us, please let us know. Harada nodded once and the three women stood. Please find who did this. Harada's measured voice wavered slightly. I have to make too many terrible calls tonight to tell her clients that she's dead. I have to untether them from the person who gave them stability and guidance, which might just worsen their trauma. They don't deserve this. Neither did she. We'll do everything we can, Miyako said. Harada nodded again and left. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Emma took a sip of her tea, now room temperature. She could almost see the emptiness Harada had described, the hollow space where Dr. Huang had once lived. The memory of the body's shredded throat popped into Emma's mind, overlaying her thoughts. Fish tearing flesh from her mouth, hair tangled with river debris, skin sloughing away. Are you okay? Miyako said. Emma forced herself to refocus. She stared out of the interrogation room, past the squad area watching the two women leave the department. Neither of them seemed to be hiding anything. I agree. I'll start sifting through the client files. Emma peeled off her sleeve and flattened it on the table. I'll also flag any client IDs in our system in case something turns up. Good, Miyako said. And I almost forgot something, so I'll be right back. Emma nodded already sinking the files to her retinal display. Huang had more than 40 active cases, not to mention the archived files for inactive clients. As a list of names cascaded down her vision, Harada's words echoed. Each of these files represented a person who had been touched by Dr. Huang's care. Emma had seen what trauma could do to people. The wreckage left behind. And now Huang was dead. Each of these people would have to find their way through a fresh blow to their stability. Emma was no stranger to violence. But the brutality, the intimacy of this kind of death was difficult to process. Someone chose this woman. Whether they knew her or not. They killed her with their own hands choked her until her neurons stopped firing, then dumped her into the river. Everything she was, her entire life leading up to that point, all the thoughts and desires and fears that made up Huang Akari, reduced to dead flesh on a riverbank. 
Okay, Miyako said as she came back into the room, startling Emma. Oh, sorry. I was just reading. Miyako held out a small box with both hands. When Emma just looked at her, Miyako nudged the air with the box. Go ahead. Emma clicked off her retinal display. You got me a gift? Miyako shrugged. You were nice enough to bring those chocolates. She took the box, opened the folded end, and shook it gently until a black leather hunkle case slid into her open palm. Everyone in Japan needs one, Miyako said. Emma tossed the box onto the table, opened the case, and examined the wooden ink stamp engraved with her name. Higashi Emma. Miyako! Emma threw her arms around her partner, squeezing tight. Miyako stiffened and awkwardly patted Emma a couple of times before extracting herself. The unexpected gift was enough to drown out Emma's thoughts about the murder, amplifying her gratitude. This is so sweet. Thank you. I love it. I can't believe you thought of me. Miyako smiled. You live in Japan for real now. You can't get away with not having one of these anymore. Emma brushed her fingertip over the texture of her name in kanji and katakana. Her Japanese self and her American self. Together as one whole. The next morning, Nishimura called Emma and Miyako to a crime scene at the Gate Hotel in Asakusa near Sensoji Temple and Tokyo Sky Tree. With well over a hundred rooms, the tall gray building wore a series of projected animated advertisements that prompted viewer interaction. Below the building was a crowded shopping and dining area. The scent of grilled meat and vegetables filled the air as smoke from a nearby yakitori restaurant billowed onto the walkway. Upon their arrival at the scene on the tenth floor, Nishimura and Sato filled them in with what they knew so far. The bathrobed body of an elderly man was draped face down over the side of the bathtub, his head and arms still half-submerged. The man was Uchida Makoto, a retired salaryman for an insurance company. Late sixties, half Chinese on his mother's side. Widower. Two adult children. Definite signs of struggle. Blood-stained water from a non-lethal blow to the head. A clump of pulled hair. Bruises at the hip bones, suggesting he was forced to drape over the edge of the tub while still alive. Sato used his laser to point to a few droplets of blood on the wall not far from the hotel room door. Emma's eyes highlighted the outline of the drops. Spatter here indicates medium velocity, Sato said tracing a path with the laser. Most likely, this is where he was hit in the head with a blunt object. He shifted his position so that he was facing the bathroom from across the small entryway, then moved his arms slowly through the air to mimic swinging something down to hit someone in the head. Assailant facing this way. What kind of blunt object? Miyako said. Sato nudged his glasses up with the back of his wrist. 
Hard to say until we can analyze trace evidence, but the shape of the head wound is fairly concentrated. Maybe a hammer. I need you to balance this with closing the Sumida River case. Nishimura took a few steps around the room, surveying the area from beneath his narrow-brimmed hat. The media are starting to talk about Tokyo feeling more dangerous than usual. Minister Kobayashi and the rest of the Nippon Saisei party are being extra-loud opportunists right now, saying this is what happens when we divide the land and the population. People are listening. Well, we can start with this. The victim took off his data sleeve. Emma noted it resting flat on a short table in the space just outside the bathroom. Unless the killer drew a surprise bath for him, he was probably about to take one. Let's look at the security footage, Miyako said. Sorry, Nishimura said. No direct footage. The hotel had a blackout. Of course, Emma groaned. We'll pull security footage from before the blackout then, Miyako said. This room's hallway, the elevators, the stairwell, and the hotel lobby to start. If the killer entered the room before the blackout, we'll see it. I'll have the data miners get on it, and also have them search surveillance drone footage from outside. Emma peered out the window. We might get lucky if there was a drone that caught any flashlights through here during the blackout, Emma said. She gestured toward the sky. This side of the building isn't as highly trafficked as the others, though. Emma continued scanning the small space, taking in the layout. Upon entering the room, the bathroom was immediately to the left, and to the right, a mirrored sliding door closet contained extra blankets and towels. Beyond that, a small bed, which the crime scene technicians were stripping to shake out the bedclothes later at the lab. Her eye picked up no other bloodstains. Nishimura-san, would you mind if we cleared the scene of personnel? Emma said. Other than Miyako and me? Just for a few minutes? We're not quite finished sweeping the rest of the room, Sato said, dropping a hair into an evidence bag. We won't interfere with anything, Emma said. I just want to see what the room is like during a blackout. She's right, Miyako said. It could help us narrow things down. Nishimura sighed. Five minutes. Then I want you two talking to the hotel staff who were on duty last night. Everyone, please find a moment to stop and wait in the hallway. The technicians looked at each other, hesitating. Nishimura-san. Five minutes. He swept his arm toward the door. I assure you, no one will interfere with the scene. Emma bowed at the technicians as they walked past with evidence bags and carefully wrapped linens in hand. As he was leaving, Sato passed Miyako and Emma each a pair of nitrile gloves. Thank you, Miyako said. I'll stay to supervise, Nishimura assured the technicians. Emma gave Miyako a look. They weren't going to tamper with anything. They didn't need a babysitter. But she just put on her gloves and walked over to the hotel room window, making sure the heavy curtains were drawn closed rather than using the electronic darkening screen, 
which would have been inaccessible at the time of the murder. Remember the location of the blood spatter, Miyako said, then switched off the lights. Emma's infrared vision kicked on, transforming Miyako and Nishimura into rainbow silhouettes of thermal patterns. You can't see much of anything in here, Nishimura said, and I doubt the killer used a flashlight. Miyako's nearly monochrome head nodded in the black. I'm sure the view from your perspective is pretty clear, though, Emma. Right. She kept her infrared vision activated long enough to make her way back to the front of the room, then shut it off, dousing her view in pitch black. I've turned it off. The three of them stood in the small, crowded entrance area between the hotel room door, the bathroom entrance, and the open closet. From Emma's left came the sound of Nishimura's dress shirt rustling as he shifted his weight. I'm not sure what this is. Let's listen, Miyako said. My eyes have adjusted to the dark just enough that I can make you both out, but only barely. And it helps that I already knew you were there. Emma, can you walk into the bathroom and then walk back out? It seems unlikely he wouldn't have seen the killer already at that point, Nishimura said. The towel closet, Miyako said, just as Emma hit upon the same thought. If the killer hid in the closet, they could easily have ambushed Uchida. Nishimura reactivated the lights. There's no towel in the bathroom. Miyako slid open the closet door farther to point at a wrinkled blue towel bunched up on the floor in the corner. Because the towel he had been using is right here. Right. So let's say the killer was waiting in the closet. Emma stepped inside the closet, then slid the door closed. Encased in darkness, save a band of light around the crack between the door and the wall, she cleared her mind of distraction and imagined being the killer. She would have listened to Uchida return to the room, believing himself to be alone. Kept herself as still as possible, quiet as death. Hiding there, she imagined the feeling of being poised to act, seeing the sliver of light at the closet door momentarily eclipsed by Uchida walking past. Maybe Uchida talked to himself. Maybe he watched streams on his sleeve, or activated a game while lying in bed. All the while, the killer had waited, clutching his blunt weapon. Emma projected her voice. So I'm the killer, and I'm waiting in here. I hear Uchida come back into his room at some point. Her body heat and breath warmed the space as she spoke. I know I only have one chance, so I wait, as long as it takes. At some point, Uchida draws a bath. I expect him to come get a towel, because I took the one from the bathroom. I'm ready for him. Miyako's words came muffled. Then the blackout happens. The band of light disappeared from around the door. Emma's infrared activated, but she immediately deactivated it again. Uchida would have gone for his sleeve to turn on the flashlight. Miyako's voice came from the direction of the bathroom. He would have bent down to pick it up. 
Emma kept her movements quick and precise as she slid open the closet door with a bang and did a slow motion swing downward, wielding the invisible weapon. The lights flicked on again. Nishimura stood near the control panel. Emma and Miyako looked at each other. Miyako remained bent over, pretending to pick up the data slave. But the trajectory of Emma's reenacted swing was wild and off mark, nowhere near Miyako's head. They relaxed their poses. The killer had to be lucky to swing accurately in the dark, Emma said. There's no way they could know Uchida's exact position to make the hit Sako described. But the blood spatter tells us the killer had to have come from the direction of the closet, not the bedroom, Nishimura said, then folded his arms and covered his mouth in concentration. The angle would be wrong otherwise. You could have managed that with no problem. Miyako looked Emma in the eye. If I was in the closet, waiting for Uchida even after it went dark, not you the killer. Miyako said. You, Higashi Emma. Cold dread surged through Emma. Of course she could. She could see an infrared. The killer has an implant. Act two. The next day, Miyako met Emma in the interrogation room to discuss the rushed coroner's reports on Huang and Uchida. Cause of Huang's death? Strangulation. Uchida's? Drowning. Confirmation of what they already knew. The labs also came back on Huang's fingernail debris. All inconclusive, thanks to the river. Fibers collected from Uchida's bathroom could have belonged to a wide array of textiles used in mass-produced clothing, and the hairs they had collected belonged to Uchida. Interviews with hotel staff and the occupants of nearby rooms had yielded nothing meaningful. No one had heard anything, thanks to the hotel's much-lauded insulation that shielded guests from noise disturbances. And Uchida himself was visiting from Osaka, to quietly celebrate his 40th wedding anniversary with his husband, who had been dead for five years. Thankfully, the data miners had results from their surveillance analyses. They weren't able to obtain anything meaningful from drones in the vicinity of Dr. Huang's apartment building, but security footage from the hotel showed a tall, broadly built person using his sleeve to enter Uchida's room prior to the blackout. Hotel logs indicated it was Uchida who entered, but it clearly wasn't the victim, who was much older and smaller than the man in the footage. They were right. The killer had waited for him. Miyako rubbed her forehead and closed her eyes, letting the details of both murders cascade through her mind. Eddie's a frustration gathered around the collected information. No motives. Dead-end interviews, a long list of psychiatric clients, surveillance footage, a body in a river, a body in a bathtub. Wait. She opened her eyes again and started scribbling furiously. What is it? Emma said, approaching the glass next to Miyako. So we have strangulation, probably by some sort of thin plastic implement. 
Miyako said, writing the confirmed cause of death in Huang's section of the diagram. Then she used her stylus to point to Uchida's side of the chart. Blunt force trauma to the head, followed by drowning. Emma put her thumbnail between her teeth as she scrutinized the mess on the glass. Miyako continued, talking as she wrote. Something was bothering me after we saw the hotel crime scene. Look. She tapped two new names on her chart, then continued writing beneath them. Two unsolved cases from the past six months. Both took place during blackouts. Not that unusual on its own, but I knew something else about our new cases was familiar. She could feel Emma's skepticism wafting off her as she squinted at the glass. Or maybe she was just struggling to read. It didn't matter. Miyoko knew she had something here. She entered the commands to retrieve old case files, then swiped the corresponding crime scene photos up onto the glass. Sakai Kinjiro, Miyako said, pointing with her stylus again. 22, half Chinese on his mother's side, attacked in the middle of the night while walking his dog during a blackout. Stabbed six times. Body found in the shallows of a nearby pond. Huh. Emma was seeing it too. Kojima Tadashi, Miyako continued, pointing at the second set of old photos. 36, family man. Grandparents on his father's side were from Guangzhou. Murdered at his office after hours, during a blackout. Blunt force trauma to the head. Body found in the lobby fountain, Emma read aloud. Exactly. Water, Emma said. All four bodies were found in water. Miyako finished writing the last of the details on the glass, then tossed her stylus onto the nearby table and turned to Emma. Four victims, all of Chinese descent, all killed during blackouts, all found in water. I think we have a serial killer. Chinese ancestry is common, but when you look at the other details, it becomes something worth considering. We don't get that many murders in the first place. Finding them in water? Not common at all. And blackouts may happen almost daily. But we can't ignore that the killer is probably using darkness to his advantage if we're right about his enhanced vision. If these were the work of the same person, then Sakai was first, Emma said. If it started with him, there had to be a reason. We don't know for certain whether it started with him, Miyako said. There may be others. He was the first we know of, so let's think about it. You're Sakai, Emma said ticking off each fact on a finger as she spoke. You're a young single guy at your first salaried job. According to the case file, your only friends are your co-workers. You have a dog, and you have your parents. Your life is routine. You take the same route to work, shop at the same konbini. Who do you come in contact with? Right. Miyako pointed at the corresponding notes on the glass. Other commuters... Konbini employees, co-workers, karaoke employees, neighbors, people we investigated. All dead ends. Emma nodded. Same as with Huang, right? And Kojima. So maybe it wasn't someone who saw Sakai every day, but targeted him through some other point of contact. There's nothing else in Sakai's file. We should talk to his parents again, Emma said. 
It says he visited them at least once during the week and once every weekend. They were close. Let's give them a call. That evening, Kensuke arrived to help Emma finish unpacking at her new apartment. She'd left the door unlocked for him. When she heard him come in, she waved from her nest of cardboard and packing paper. He made his way through her living room, precariously stepping over military-issued duffel bags and piles of towels she had yet to put away. In the background, a wall projection of her sleeve's newsfeed chattered about the increasing noise from Nippon Saisei. She turned the volume down a couple of notches. You know, Kensuke said, running his hand through his iridescent hair. You could make this place more welcoming if you had some kind of cohesive theme that wasn't just barracks chic. Emma opened the nearest bag and started tossing items of clothing onto the folded-up futon. Pale yellow light washed the apartment in a glow Emma found more comforting than drab, and her familiar belongings surrounded her like a hug. She shrugged. I just got here. I haven't put my pictures on the walls yet. Pictures, right. He nodded with faux seriousness and sat down on the old matted down carpet. The domestic goddess of every man's dreams. She rolled her eyes and tossed a button-down shirt that landed half on his head. If you want to hang out with a domestic goddess, design a virtual assistant. Laughing, he pulled the shirt onto his lap to fold it. So, G-I-J-N, Kensuke added an exaggerated Japanese accent to the name. Do you feel settled into the job yet? A small, unexpected spike of anxiety surged through Emma's chest, but she shoved it down. Sure, she said. Huang's clouded eyes, the stench of death, darkness sweeping through Tokyo bloated flesh and water, severed arms, Harada's grief-white knuckles, trampled corpses, pulped faces. Miyako's been helpful. I think she's warming up to me. Emma heard the unusually flat tone of her own voice, betraying her thoughts about the victims. She swallowed her emotions and took an unrealistically focused interest in her own clothes. Hmm, Kensuke said. I'm glad. Emma looked through her bag of shoes. Mostly boots, a few sneakers. Her dress shoes were somewhere. Where? Maybe by the door. Huang's throat. Her fish-devoured face. Kensuke stood and looked around the room. Peeked at the kitchen. Hands in his pockets, he maintained a relaxed posture as he took in her new home. The blank gray walls, the warm, unopened beer on the kitchen counter. She suddenly felt exposed in a way she hadn't anticipated. They remained silent, letting the background noise of the news fill the space. Shinonomachi border between the Japanese and Chinese sectors. China has denied any deliberate drone curtain manipulation and has committed to investigating possible wind interference in the coming weeks. But Minister Kobayashi of the Nippon Saisei Party insists that there's foul play. 
Kensuke wandered back toward Emma. I've been following up on a couple of long-term investigations this week. Old kidnappings with indirect ties to some of my contacts. Little kids, mostly. A few teens. He crouched near her and started folding the clothes she had thrown onto the futon. Emma continued unpacking and sorting in her haphazard way. It reminded me of when I first started working in organized crime. At first, I did okay. Work was work. Life carried on. But something switched eventually. One violent crime too many, maybe. After that, I carried everything home with me. He placed a perfectly folded sweater on a bare spot on the floor, then tugged a pair of her pants off the futon and started the folding process again. I ate dinner. Victims sat next to me. I showered. They waited for me just outside. I slept. They lay next to me. I felt cold at night no matter how many blankets I bought. By now, Emma had stopped messing with her shoes and just listened. I lost sleep. I wondered what the point was of coming home at all, if it was no different than being at work. I had to tell them to move out. The victims, the criminals, the witnesses, all of them. He placed his hand on Emma's. Sometimes they still wait for me on my doorstep but they almost never come inside. She passed her thumb over his. Was it hard to keep them out? Of course, but you have to try. This work can eat you alive. The gold light of the apartment flickered briefly. No housewarming like a power failure, Kensuke said. Emma's pulse spiked. The power remained on. Relief made her almost lightheaded, but she laughed it off. I guess I'm spared that particular. The lights went out. Pitch black hotel room. Spatter of blood. Emma gripped Kensuke's heat bright hand, swept her infrared gaze around the room. It landed on the cool outline of her futon closet. No one could even fit in there. This paranoia was ridiculous, she told herself. But Uchida's frail body draped over a cold bathtub. The power turned back on. There we go, Kensuke said, pulling his hand away. Gently. Civilization returns. You'll get used to it. A prompt beeped on Emma's sleeve. Resume external connection? She swept along the edge, returning the newsfeed to the wall projection. Bathing the space in sounds and images from the outside world felt imperative. It's funny. Emma abandoned her unpacking to lean back against the wall. I've worked in war zones. I've seen devastation, poverty, corruption. I wasn't numb to it, but they don't deploy you unprepared. Part of the job was caring about the people on the ground. But in a distant way, you know? 
I had a division between me and them. I cared about them, but they were still a them. And I was still a U.S. peacekeeper. Kensuke chuckled, not unkindly, and scooted right next to where Emma was sitting, mirroring her posture. I guess you're saying you're a them now. You're a part of us. Miyako and Emma's visit with Sakai's parents was the next day, in a park next to U.S. territory. They had offered to commute to the Sakai's home in the ASEAN sector, but the couple insisted on fresh air. Now that they were here, Emma was grateful for a moment away from buildings vulnerable to power loss. It was quiet. Sakura trees dotted the park, and owl sculptures stared at the few visitors who walked the paths. Wisps of feather-white clouds drifted across a pale blue sky. Thank you for meeting with us, Miyako said when the Sakais arrived. This is my partner, Higashi Emma. Emma bowed. We're grateful. Kazuo and Jen Sakai were an attractive but tired-looking older couple. According to earlier police interviews, the two had met during Kazuo Sakai's study abroad in China during university. Jen followed him back to Japan, where she went to graduate school in Osaka. Now they lived alone in a house meant to see grandchildren, but had only trauma for company. The couple sat next to Miyako and Emma on a long bench near a walking path. One of the metal owl sculptures supervised their meeting. Jen Sakai spoke first. How can we help you with your investigation of Ginjiro's death? Her Japanese was formal, but not stilted. Emma's uncertainty about etiquette gnawed at her. Mercifully, Miyako took the lead. We were wondering... She allowed this to linger momentarily, easing into their conversation. Do you remember if your son had spoken about any special events prior to his death? Special events? The parents looked at each other, wordlessly wading through layers of grief in search of memories. Kazuo Sakai closed his eyes and furrowed his brow. Anything at all. Miyako said. Did he have any interests, like sports or work-related extracurriculars? Karaoke, the father said, and both parents chuckled a bit. He couldn't sing well at all, but this just made everyone laugh, so he sang often and loudly. The father's smile faded. But the police already knew he visited karaoke bars. I remember... We talked about that before. A child's distant, tumbling laughter punctuated the quiet. Do you remember if there was anything else? Miyako encouraged. You know, he did some volunteering, too, Jen Sakai said. Maybe four or five different organizations, wherever help was needed. Clothing rustled quietly as the father corrected his posture. 
I wanted him to spend a little less time worrying about others and more time focusing on building security for himself after the war. He chuckled. Such rebellion, wasn't it? We were truly blessed. Do you remember the names of any of these organizations? Miyako said. The parents looked at each other again. Kazuo Sakai spoke first. Something for dogs? <gasps> oh! The mother said, touching her husband's arm. There was that, but Kinjiro loved working with the veterans the most. Do you remember? Ah. <sighs> he nodded. Yes, that's right. A small bolt of excitement shot through Emma. It could be nothing, but if Sakai had a connection to veterans, that could have put him in contact with someone with an ocular implant. Okay, that's good, Emma said. Would you happen to remember the names of these organizations? Both looked regretful. Sumimasen, Jen said. It's okay, Miyako said. You've already been tremendously helpful. Is there anything else you can think of? The mother shook her head. We're sorry, but... She looked at her husband. We can send you photos if that would help, he offered. We have so many. That would be extremely helpful, Sakai-san, Emma said. Jen tugged up her sweater to reveal the lower half of her data sleeve. It took a few moments for her to access the photos in question. Then she bumped them to Miyako. Thank you so much. Miyako silently bumped them over to Emma. The four stood and exchanged parting pleasantries. Then Jen Sakai took Miyako's and Emma's hands, one each. May you never see the empty shape of your child's place in this world. Thank you for continuing to look after Ginjiro. Back in Ninth Step Station's interrogation room, Miyako and Emma compiled all the information. Emma leaned back in her chair, staring at the smart glass. Although her eyes struggled to translate Miyako's quick handwriting, she experienced a small rush of pleasure when she was able to fill in some of the linguistic gaps herself. Not all of them, but more than she would have been able to manage a couple of weeks ago. Empty cans of Wanda vending machine coffee dotted the table in front of her, and a half-empty milk tea bottle sat at Miyako's feet. They had run a search against all of Huang's clients to identify anyone who was a veteran or had immediate family members who were veterans. For a trauma specialist in post-war Japan, this was a significant chunk of her caseload, but when they limited it to people who were large enough to be the person in the hotel surveillance footage, it was down to 11 people. I've already sent the list of Huang's veteran clients over to the data miners, Miyako said, forming the words around a piece of hard candy as she scribbled additional notes on the smart glass. I still feel like this might be a long shot. Doesn't everyone know a vet these days? Yes, but it's something. Emma stood up and placed her palms on the table to look at her flattened data sleeve. We're getting close. I can feel it. 
That's just your empty stomach, Miyako said. The candy clanked against her teeth. Emma glanced up at her, grinning. Did you just make a joke? Of course not. They worked well past dusk. Yamada invited them out to dinner, but they waved him off. Around 8 p.m., the data miners pinged Miyako. They identified the veteran organization Sakai's parents had mentioned by scanning through the photos, identifying a high school gymnasium using architectural scans. Cross-referencing the high school against veteran-focused nonprofits returned only one result, the Japanese Society for Veteran Support. They held their bi-weekly game nights at the high school. Yes, Emma said, bumping the table with her fist. That's not even the best part, Miyako said. The data miners already sent over lists of everyone who signed in for the events at the high school. Let's hear it. Three attendees? Miyako slid three profiles from her data sleeve to the projection module. Were clients of Dr. Huang. Act Three. The first two of Huang's three clients were immediately ruled out to their verifiable alibis. But that evening, Miyako and Emma paid a visit to the third client, Noguchi Shichiro, at his low-income apartment in another converted office building in Kamata. Some residents had hacked into the digital logo at the entrance and reprogrammed it to read Manshan, despite the deteriorating quality of the exterior and threadbare carpet. Noguchi's home gave Miyako a bleak feeling. The only window was permanently half-dark from a malfunctioning blackout screen, and the floor cushions had flattened so badly that they felt much like sitting on folded fabric. Deep smile lines textured Noguchi's broad face. His full, dark hair flared out at the back and was tipped in a cheap drugstore red that Miyako recognized. They spent the first half hour with Noguchi verifying his I-was-sleeping alibi. Given that all four murders had happened during blackouts, there was no way to access data about who was in the building at the time. After several rounds of tea which Noguchi insisted they pause the conversation to have. He tried using his phone to show them a few photos of his cat that he had taken on the nights in question. He couldn't seem to grasp that this was insufficient to verify an alibi. Emma looked like she wanted to jump out of her skin in frustration. Please, Noguchi-san, Miyako said. The tea is lovely, but we need to focus. The lights flickered. Noguchi swore under his breath. The power stabilized. That's the third time today, Noguchi said. I wouldn't be able to refill your tea in the dark. No emergency lights? Miyako asked. He shook his head and took a sip, smacking his lips a few times. Couldn't afford that. Extra charge on rent. I guess Higashi-san here would have to make our refill. He raised his cup to her. Emma looked confused. Noguchi-san? He tapped his temple. 
Your eye. I know that pretty sheen you have. Infrared must be nice when the power goes out. It can be useful. Miyako's pulse quickened, but she kept her voice calm. Quiet. How are you so familiar with it? Have you had one implanted? He huffed. Wish I could afford a mod like that. Buddy of mine landed some upgrades during the war when he was captured by the Chinese. Got injured, but they fixed his eyes right up. Miyako's intuition nudged her. Keep going. Is this someone you know from the nonprofit? Yeah, infrared's not exactly a fair trade for being a prisoner of war. But at least it's something. I just got PTSD. What was your friend's name? Emma said. Noguchi set down his cup, shifted his weight in his seat. Etto, listen, I, I didn't mean to get anyone in trouble. There's nothing illegal about having infrared vision, Noguchi-san. Miyako softened her expression. We only want to talk to everyone who might be helpful to our investigation. You've been wonderful so far. He hesitated. Your friend's name, Noguchi-san? Otsuka Daisuke. How well do you know him? Miyako said. Pretty well. He lives on the floor below this one. And you said he was a prisoner of war? Yeah, with the Chinese. Toward the end. Good guy, too. Quiet, kind of serious. But I can't blame him. A lot of us get that way. Never met anyone who cared so much about serving his country. I'm sure he'd want to help you. Emma confirmed that her eye was set to record visual input while her sleeve recorded audio, then pressed the call button on apartment 217. Footsteps. Miyako tensed next to her. Hello? A man's voice through the door. They held up their badges to the view lens. Tokyo Metropolitan Police, Miyako said. Otsuka Daisuke? Why? He said. Miyako kept her voice even. We need to speak with you. A few seconds passed. Then came the sound of locks disengaging. The door opened. Otsuka towered over them. His body was wide but lean with a corded neck and powerful arms. Although his pants were a semi-loose style, Emma could tell his legs were thick trunks. His hair was cropped in a short, minimalistic style. He looked at them with an unsettling intensity. Otsuka-san, Miyako said. May we enter? For a moment, he searched their faces, processing some calculus of apprehension. The lines around his eyes and mouth gave him that same weathered look that some of Emma's comrades had. Trauma worn on his face in grooves, eyes that darted a little too quickly, countless small muscles that never quite relaxed, furtive movements that gave him the quality of a large, fearsome bird. Okay. Otsuka stepped aside, and they followed him in. His apartment was clean to the point of being spartan. 
A single white kotatsu in the middle of the room held nothing on it. We spoke to your neighbor Noguchi, Emma said. His close-set eyes locked onto Emma's. A familiar gleam flashed across his cornea. Noguchi, yes. He said you spend time together at game nights. Otsuka's eye glinted again. Though Emma couldn't quite tell whether it was the light catching it, or him accessing something. A hint of a smile brightened his face. Game nights. Yes, they helped me. Why don't you tell us about that? Miyako said. She was easing him into it. At first, he cooperated. He spoke positively of his time with the nonprofit. But the more he talked about how he understood the importance of community involvement, and how successfully he had reintegrated into the community post-conflict. His words and cadence sounded like rehearsed lines. Occasionally, he paused. The more he did so, the more certain Emma became that he was multitasking with his implant. Once Miyako started questioning him about the war, the mood changed. I don't have anything to say about that, he said. Noguchi had painted Otsuka as a quiet but good guy, yet that raptor ferocity lurked under his skin, pulling everything taut. We'd like you to talk about your experiences with the Chinese, Emma said. Miyako looked at her, but she kept her focus on Otsuka. Noguchi-san shared a little bit about how they helped you. Will you talk about that? His jaw tightened. Why? We'd like to ask you to cooperate with us, Otsuka-san, Miyako said. Please answer the question. I was a prisoner of war. Emma nodded. And they took care of your eye after you were injured, is that correct? His face flushed. Yes. So you have a connection to the Chinese? No! All that pent-up energy exploded into the room when he bellowed that one word. He stood, looming over them. I have no connection to the Chinese. Both women stood. Emma's hand hovered over her sidearm, and Miyako made placating gestures. Please remain calm, Otsuka-san, Miyako said. We only asked you a question. You have no idea. He wiped his hand over his face, pulling the skin beneath his eyes. Emma glanced at Miyako, who shifted her weight to be ready to move. No idea about what, Otsuka-san? None of you can see it. He dropped his hand and took one step backward. None of you can. He locked eyes with Emma without moving his head. Not even you. Miyako stepped forward, calling his attention to her. What can't we see? He snapped his head toward Miyako, bird-like. You don't know them like I do. Who? The Chinese! He spoke quickly now, each word blurring into the next. They say they want to help restore Japan, but they lie. 
It isn't peace they broker with their so-called stable infrastructure and thriving currencies. The war never ended. It's just a silent war now. They want to spread ruin like a disease. I see it! I see it! What, Otsuka? Miyako said. What do you see? They were so close. Them. Their blood. I know who they are. They changed me when they gave me my eye. They made me Chinese. So I see them, and I know. He was spinning out. Emma made a cautious movement toward him. Let's go to the station to talk. You can't live in two worlds. He jerked away. It changes you. It fractures you. Otsuka. Miyako's voice was stern. You said you see them and you know. What do you know? They think they can erode us from the inside out. I had to stop them. How did you stop them, Otsuka-san? Miyako stepped toward him, palms open. The lights went out. Infrared switched on in the apartment. Otsuka bolted. Stop! Miyako shouted. Emma lunged for him, but he was at the door faster than she could grab him. He shoved it, attempting to swing it shut on them, but Emma stopped it with her boot. They threw the door open and chased him into the hallway, but he was too fast, too familiar with the space and how to maneuver in a dark world. Emma drew her sidearm to incapacitate him, but his heat-gradient form had already turned the corner. Miyako's heart pounded as she drew her tonfa and they took off after Otsuka, the light from her sleeve projecting a shaking cone as she ran. She caught Otsuka in its beam as he dashed down the hallway and around the corner toward the side stairwell. The building's generators kicked on. Floodlights illuminated the hallway just as their suspect opened the heavy stairwell door and disappeared inside. Emma caught the door, and they followed him in. The space inside was pitch black, but emergency lighting shone below. Otsuka's frantic footfalls echoed as he descended. They followed. Fast. He jumped the last several steps to the first landing before continuing down. Stop! Miyako shouted again. Otsuka! Sharp crunching beneath their shoes. The sound of glass breaking below. Darkness followed Otsuka. Miyako swung her light upward to reveal a shattered emergency light. He's breaking them. Emma was fast, but Miyako was close behind. They ran down, skipping several steps at a time, using the railing to launch forward precariously, even in the dark. Miyako's senses tracked everything they could latch onto. Heavy bootfalls heading downward. Emma's breathing. More glass shattering below. Miyako's light bouncing as she ran. Spotlighting patches of concrete wall and stairs. Occasionally cutting across Otsuka before he darted away. He's at the bottom, Emma said breathlessly. Just as Miyako caught a glimpse of Otsuka smashing the final stairway emergency light. A heavy door opened. Then slammed shut. Seconds later, the pair reached the bottom. Emma threw open the door to reveal a huge basement illuminated by floodlights. Thick 
Concrete pillars divided a room crowded by a tangle of pipes and machinery. Emma stepped forward, holding her sidearm low. Otsuka Daisuke! Miyako called, reaffirming her grip on her tonfa. You have nowhere to go! Surrender now! Silence. Emma gestured for Miyako to head left, and that she would head right to sweep the space quickly. They stepped in and fanned out. Ears and eyes open for any sound, any movement. And then, in an instant, they were surrounded by a yawning black void. Shuffling footsteps across the room. Something banged loudly. Activate light. Miyako held her forearm up to her face, squinting uselessly. Why wasn't her sleeve working? She groped in the dark with her free hand. Movement behind her. She spun around. Tonfa positioned defensively. Emma? She couldn't call out to her without giving her location away. She needed to touch something solid. She reached. Free hand outstretched. Empty space. There. Something solid. Rough and cool. Concrete. She backed against it, quietly, held her tonfa across the front of her body, listened. Details came to her, each one urgent. Solid earth beneath her feet, the reassuring weight of the tonfa, smooth polycarbonate in her sweat-slicked hand, the smell of rock and damp, the awareness that Emma was out there. But so is he. Darkness crowded her. It felt like something with weight and mass and the ability to suffocate. She took a slow, deep breath. Succumbing to anxiety would only make her more vulnerable. She moved sideways, keeping her back flat to the pillar. Her hand patted the empty space beyond it. For all she knew, it could go on forever. Miyako forced herself to step quietly sideways. Her back parted from the reassuring pillar. Another cautious step. Listen. Another step. Her hand patted nothing, then landed on cold, rounded metal. The sound of her touching it seemed to echo endlessly. Her heartbeat sped up into a dizzying panic. Breathe. Focus. Tension warmed Miyako's body. She imagined herself a bright shimmer, announcing her presence to Otsuka. She imagined him coiled like a serpent, waiting. A faint clang some distance away. Her head snapped toward it instinctively, and the movement disoriented her. Where had it come from? How far away? Her mind sharpened to a point. Caught somewhere between dread and physiological excitement, adrenaline took the wheel. The outside world fell away. Tokyo had been reduced to three bodies moving through the black, stalking each other competing for the ability to walk away from this unscathed. 
She didn't know how much time passed. Seconds. Hours. Lifetimes. The next moments yawned open in slow motion. Otsuka's heavy footfall just behind her, his breath hitching as he heard it. Miyako turning toward him, muscles drawn tight. Time sped back up to meet her body's instincts. She swung once with her tonfa, connecting with something substantial. Otsuka grunted, then growled, moving around her in the dark. Miyako tuned into her body, the way it occupied space, the way it moved. She just had to last long enough for Emma to reach her. He tried putting her in a chokehold, but she bent at the knees and used the position of his arm to throw him over her shoulder onto the hard concrete. She immediately used her body weight to keep him down. I have you in my sight! Emma bellowed. Miyako bent Otsuka's arm and ground her boot into his leg. Do not move, Emma said. I will shoot. Otsuka Daisuke. Miyako pulled his other arm behind him to cuff him. You are under arrest for the murders of Sakai Ginjiro, Kojima Tadashi, Huang Akari, and Uchida Makoto. Two days later, the department gathered for their annual hanami at Sumida Park. Pale petals blanketed the ground, turning walking paths into winding pastel confections. People trickled in and out of the area in steady streams. Emma closed her eyes and breathed it all in. Eventually, Miyako arrived. Emma was glad her partner showed up. One by one, her other colleagues came. Sato-san, Emma said when he approached her. Good to see you. And you, Higashi-san. He nodded to Miyoko. Koreda-san, I'm glad you both came, Sato said. I wanted to tell you what the detention facility physician found when she examined Otsuka's eye. Apparently, he really was perceiving something unusual when his infrared vision activated, due to a glitch in the color display. A dark spot that sometimes manifested on particularly warm areas, he interpreted that as a mystical sign the person had nefarious intentions. A glitch, Miyako said. He killed four people because of a hardware malfunction. I wouldn't say that exactly, but it certainly didn't help. His implant isn't entirely compatible with our sector's networks. The severity of the glitch depended on a variety of factors. The building, the neighborhood, sometimes even local drone traffic. A touch of nausea crept into Emma's gut. She knew it wasn't as straightforward as blaming Otsuka's violence on a malfunction. But she couldn't help wondering. Would he have done these things had the implant worked as intended? If the city hadn't been so fractured? She knew this was an oversimplification. But still, it would haunt her. Nishimura probably won't say it. But he's impressed, Sato said. You two work well together. Miyako smiled at Emma. My two favorite ladies. Kensuke's voice came from behind them. Miyako's expression frosted over as she gave Emma a meaningful look. Emma just shrugged a little. 
She knew Miyako thought Emma was digging herself into a hole with Kensuke. But Miyako was too harsh toward him. You should let me take you both out to celebrate closing four cases at once, Kensuke said. Miyako rolled her eyes. I'll be over there. Your first Hanami in Tokyo, Kensuke said, sidling closer to Emma, his hands in his pockets. What do you think? I've never seen anything like it. They stood together in silence for a few minutes, taking in a confluence of beauty. The shiver of the breeze-tossed leaves and blossoms, the joyful chatter of the crowds, the late afternoon sunlight glinting off the water. Eventually, Kensuke cleared his throat, then spoke softly. What a strange thing to be alive beneath cherry blossoms. Another haiku, Emma said. Kensuke stared up at the trees with a thoughtful look on his face. It was one of her favorites. A river of people flowed beneath the blossoms, each face glowing as sunset bathed the city in warm, joyful hues. Looking at the crowd, it was impossible to know whose ancestors had come from where and when. Who had grown up in Japan? Who, like Emma, had arrived later in life? Who carried blood from other lands in their veins? They were all here. Now. In this moment. Otsuka shared this same space with them too. In a way. He rooted himself inside her mind even now. Kensuke nudged her. You're not indulging unwelcome guests, are you? She smiled. I thought that was only at home. A sakura petal landed on Emma's shoulder. Kensuke picked it up to show her. For now, you are home. He blew the petal into the breeze. You're listening to Ninth Step Murders, Episode 4, by Jacqueline Koyanagi, starring Emily Wu Zeller. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast that's breaking barriers. This is Reppin. It's where we do a deep dive into subjects like belonging, to mental health, to courage, and more. On Reppin, you'll meet the faces you think you know and discover their untold stories. It's real, it's intimate, and it gives you insight into the real person behind the images. In a world of pretense, Reppin strips it all down. No filters, no facades. Learn and be empowered and find inspiration through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Reppin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. 
Ninth Step Murders is written by Malka Older, Courtesy Chen, Jacqueline Koyanagi, and Fran Wild. It is executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton. Audio production, voice direction, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. <laughs>